The theologian James Cohn once wrote, All theological language is political. In the Public Theologians podcast, we explore the political, social, and economic implications of following Jesus here and now. Thanks so much for listening. At the very start of Jesus' ministry, according to Luke, we have this interaction. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, and he had, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. As he stood up to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Prison abolition is something that is at the heart of the gospel, and yet it's something that we hardly ever talk about, at least in the evangelical church that I grew up in. See, when I grew up, I looked to the aging Johnny Cash as a spiritual um, comrade, in a sense. He was there in the late 60s performing in prisons, and it was something that showed solidarity with the folks inside the prisons at the time. And I thought that that could be the extent of our Christian witness is to be praying for prisoners, maybe to be visiting prisoners. That is a very important thing. We've had several, even abolitionists, the abolition apostles, uh, Micah Herskin from uh, our previous episode, they all do this prison work connecting with folks uh, inside but can there be more imagination? See, when Johnny Cash performed in Folsom Prison and had that iconic moment of flipping off the prison guard, that was 1969. And at the time, the US prison population was 197,000. Today, in our year of progress, in our, our era of wokeness, our era of, of incredible social gains, there are 2.3 million people in the incarceration system in the United States of America. So this message is as timely as ever. And I'm so happy that this week we get to talk to Hannah Bowman about the work that she's engaged in around prison abolition. Okay, so Hannah Bowman is a graduate student in theology. She's a literary agent, a prison abolitionist, and restorative justice practitioner. She's the founder and director uh, of Christians for Abolition. Hannah writes and teaches on the Christian theology supporting prison abolition. 
She's developed extensive educational materials on the Christ Christians for Abolition website, which we'll link to in our show notes. She's written all over. She's been interviewed um, on the Magnificast, which is an excellent podcast. If folks listening to this have not heard that, um, uh, she's been inter interviewed in Theology and Socialism, Messy Jesus Business, and the Living Church podcast. And now she is on Public Theologians podcast. Hannah Bowman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. Yeah. So I want to hear about Christians for Abolition and particularly wanted to have you on um, because you are engaged in um, some restorative justice work. Um, and we want to talk about a bit about what are kind of the ideas for um, for solving crime, <laughs> for uh, dealing with crime, um, if not to just throw people away um, for several years or more of their life. Well, thank you. I'm excited to talk about both of both of those things. So I'll, I'll give you the brief backstory about Christians for Abolition. Um, Christians for Abolition has been around for about two and a half years. It's sort of a mostly website, but really intended also as an organizing platform. And this came out of uh, my own discernment of what to do about prison abolition from a Christian perspective. And I should say I had a sort of epiphany about prison abolition um, about five years ago. I was already somebody involved in prison ministry. I was already concerned with prison reform, concerned with the issues of mass incarceration. And I was sitting on an Amtrak train in the middle of the night reading Maya Shenwar's book, Locked Down, Locked Out, How Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. And I had this moment of epiphany, this profound relief in reading her arguments for abolition, her arguments for her presentation of restorative justice alternatives and of options that do not require prisons to keep us safe. And it was like this moment of profound relief for me to say, oh, I don't have to keep saying, well, we have to have prisons, but can we make them better? Well, we have to, we have to compromise with evil in this way. I can just say, no, this is not something we need. Let's build something better. So this epiphany was really kind of a, a religious experience for me. It was kind of a conversion moment. And out of that, um, as I started to do more work, continuing in sort of solidarity with prisoners in prison ministry and thinking about abolition, I came to the conclusion that one of the things that would be really powerful as we continue to work for abolition um, is organizing Christians. And my focus, I should say, is primarily on organizing white Christians, because I'm a white Christian, right? Mm -hmm. And I came to it from this perspective of you know, abolition has traditionally and historically been done more out of out of black Marxism, out of the black radical tradition. And that's our leadership in this work. But at the same time, for me as a as a white Christian with white privilege, recognizing the um, cultural power that is still held by, I think, Christianity among white people in this country, that, that we needed to organize our own people, right? That we needed to come in as allies in the fight, that we needed to organize ourselves and, and bring our 
Christian perspective and and all of the power of our churches to bear on saying, hey, we're going to follow the leadership of black radicals. We're going to follow the leadership of abolitionists. We're going to really work for liberation in solidarity with those who are the most marginalized. So that was the impetus behind Christians for Abolition was really saying, you know, I come from a progressive Christian tradition. And so it was really saying, how can I take progressive Christians who who like nice causes, but are not necessarily always on the forefront of radical action? And how can we educate and organize progressive Christians towards abolition in this really paradigm shifting way? And how can I help other people have this same kind of epiphany um, about abolition that, that I had and that, that I want everybody to have that kind of paradigm shift. So that's the Christians for Abolition side of it. What I do is mostly educational at this point, but it's really always aimed at and I shouldn't say it's just rich Christians, it's just white Christians, it's just progressive Christians, right? Sure. Abolition is for everybody. I start with, I've started with my own tradition because I, you know, I think it's important for us to sort of, to, to organize in our own lanes, right? And then come together um, and follow the leadership of those who are most directly impacted. But my goal is to provide resources that can also be used by incarcerated people, that can be used in community between people on the inside and outside, that can be used by any, you know, sort of broadly Christian community to say, how do the theological resources of our tradition line up with this political call to abolition? And it's really important to me that we recognize that abolition is not just another political cause. It's not just something that we say, oh, this would be a nice thing for everybody to do. And so Christians should do it too, right? But that in fact, abolition and the liberation of captives, the solidarity with the marginalized, the, the redistribution um, economically to the poor and the restorative justice work of accountability and reconciliation, that those are the things that are the center of the gospel. Those are the things that Jesus came saying he was going to put into practice. And so when we work for abolition, we're not just saying, here's an extra thing we can put on top of our faith, but it is actually central to our worship and central to our, our entire Christian life. This is what it means to follow Jesus. So that's sort of the, the Christians for abolition side. Um, I will tell you a little bit as well about the, the more restorative justice side of my work. So, you know, restorative justice can mean a lot of things, right? And can take um, a lot of forms. And one of the common forms, although not one that I am trained or, or practiced in doing is sort of um, dialogue between people who have been harmed and people responsible for harm. And that's a very powerful area of work. But I think another, uh, form of work that falls under that restorative justice heading is, is looking at these, these real abolitionist alternatives to deal, dealing with harm, right? And I use the language of harm instead of crime, just because we tend to think about crime as socially constructed, as something that, you know, the state tells us this is what a crime is, whereas harm is really about focusing on what's been done to the people who have been hurt, what do they need, and who is responsible for that. And that's a very restorative justice perspective in this language of harm. So when we're talking about what do we do with people who have done harm, how do we prevent harm, how do we sort of keep people safe without um, relying on exclusion, all of that, I think, falls under the, the heading of, of restorative justice. So the particular work that I'm involved in on the ground is something called Circles of Support and Accountability, or COSA. And COSA is a program that um, 
is a re-entry program for people who have been incarcerated, who generally people who have committed violent sexual harm. So it's, you know, an often violent sexual harm against children. That's kind of where the program started. And it grew out of an attempt in Canada when somebody was being released from prison um, who had committed various and repeated sexual harm against children and the community was worried about their own safety. The state had no legal way to hold him. And so they gathered together and literally formed a circle around this individual. So a circle is a group of three to five people who meet weekly with an individual who's returning from, from prison or from civil commitment, who provide a social space, who provide a space for truth telling and accountability, which is to say there's an, an understanding that although this is a voluntary relationship, it is a community in which there's an expectation of honesty and expectation of confidentiality, um, of not keeping secrets, where it becomes a place for healing and for taking responsibility for the harm that has been done, but also for meeting material needs, for meeting social needs, for providing all of the support in an accountable community to say, what will it take to avoid further harm happening? So the, the, key, the key tenets underneath COSA work are no more victims, that the first priority is always to make sure that no further harm happens and no one is disposable, that we can't assure safety by taking people who have done harm and excluding them. So we are just starting to get this work up and running here in Los Angeles. We're working with uh, the Community Justice Center in Fresno, California, which has been running a COSA program for a long time. And the reason that this work in particular, I think is so important is because it provides a real model for abolitionist work. It's not, it's not just working around the edges. It's avoiding that reformist trap of saying, oh, well, we'll let out the people who are nonviolent, who have committed non-serious, non-sexual offenses. And I think we hear that a lot in prison reform. Well, let's let the nonviolent drug offenders out. But the reality of abolition is that if we want to make it possible to have a world without prisons, we have to find ways to deal with the hard cases, to deal with people who really have done serious harm and to prioritize the healing of survivors of harm and to prioritize public safety without necessarily relying on excluding and locking up people for doing harm, but looking for other ways for them to take responsibility. And that is exactly what COSA is about. And COSA has been studied, it's been found to reduce the recidivism rate among this you know, very high risk population by almost 90%. And so it's proof that abolitionist alternatives can work and you know we we start building them now in the small scale in these hard cases and then we eventually expand from there yeah i mean i'm i'm really excited that you laid it out like you did and and i'm curious um cuz cuz i think one of the main objectives objections would be you know with violent with violent crime and um i know myself having done a little bit of of work in communities with um, sexual addiction and and with um, folks coming out of or going into um, prison for that, um, just the the incredible um, isolation that is created um, and 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 yeah, there's there is a fear factor that you know because there has been harm done. Um, so yeah, so I'm I'm curious and and this kind of uh, Hannah, you've put this really well in your FAQ section of your website, um, but I'll, I'll kind of maybe ask you an FAQ here as well, um, you know, just to kind of push into with violent um, 
offenders, you know, is this something that it, that can that can work? Um, you know, setting aside the fact that our current system does not work <laughs> um, and does not keep folks safe um, like it purports to do. Um, yeah, maybe tell us about some, uh, give us some hope about something else maybe working. <laughs> yeah, so the answer is that this is something that can work and it is something that is working. Um, but that the, the question of how do we respond to serious violence doesn't have an easy one-line answer. And yeah. I think what's challenging is that people asking that question often want, here is one thing we can do that will work for everybody, sure. right? And if you don't have that, you know, the answer is we try things that work. And if that doesn't work, we try something else. Um, and that doesn't mean we let harm continue or anything like that. But it does mean that there's not a one size fits all answer. And I think that's really important because in these arguments, what you often hear is, well, all right, a restorative justice circle, a voluntary program might work for somebody, but what about the people for whom that won't work? And there's no other answer to that besides, well, then we try something else. You try other forms of social pressure and other forms of social support. You keep doing things you know you can't you can't let your entire systemic response be driven by the the hypothetical case of somebody who is resistant to all of those interventions because until you start trying the interventions and until you start trying a response to violence which is based on relationship um you don't know what's going to work so that's just a quick little plug we would love it if you would rate us on apple podcasts give us a review and share it with a friend Thanks so much. It's kind of a, a theoretical response to a to a criticism that's often brought against abolition. But I think in terms of specifics, you know, COSA is a powerful model. It has been proven to work. And it's a model, as you say, precisely because it, it overcomes some of that isolation, some of that shame, right? It's about building an intentional community and a community that is accountable, but a community that's not driving people further into isolation and shame. And we know, particularly in response to sexual offenses, that many of the, the methods we use even outside of prisons, but things like, like sex offense registries um, and other sort of banishment um, tactics push people further into instability and into isolation. And we know that that's what causes um, violence. I always recommend to people psychiatrist James Gilligan's book on violence, which is based on his work with people who have committed really serious violence, mostly serial killers. And he talks about the role of shame and social mm -hmm. shame and driving violence. And so another answer is part of how we address it is by giving people access to supportive communities, to resources, to psychiatric treatment, but also to just social spaces that will help combat isolation and shame. Um, what that looks like in specific cases is really going to depend, right? So I always uh, love the example of Common Justice in New York and Danielle Sered, who's the director of Common Justice has written a really great book called Until We Reckon about this question, which is specifically about restorative justice um, conferencing. And Common Justice is a diversion program. They take people who have committed violence and the prosecutor's office instead of prosecuting uh, allows them to participate in this restorative justice program. And it's a, it's a program which is centered around this kind of very typical victim offender conferencing. They prepare both parties, they, they meet the person harmed and the person responsible meet, they talk about what led to the harm and they come together and work 
basically in consensus to find a, a plan to make amends for the harm. And Danielle Sered's points in her book are that I think are really essential are that accountability is about using your power to make up, to make amends for the harm you have done. That prisons are not producing accountability because when you take away from people the power to make something right, there's no way for them to be accountable. But also that survivors of violence are pragmatic. What they want is safety. And most survivors of violence don't choose prison if they know there are better options because they know that imprisonment is just going to lead to the people who hurt them becoming more radicalized, more isolated, more ashamed, more likely to be unstable and, and commit further violence in order to survive when they get out. And so the reality is that understanding what led to the violence and figuring out how to keep that from happening again is essential. So I'll also bring up the example here in Los Angeles of Homeboy Industries, which is Father Greg Boyle's uh, gang intervention ministry. And what, what Father Greg Boyle always says is that the the surest way to get somebody out of a gang is with a job. And so Homeboy Industries does an enormous amount of um, intervening, providing jobs, providing support, providing a number of other social and, and psychological and material supports, but building forms of community based on understanding why are people drawn to join gangs? What is it in their past that leads that to be the only social support they can find? And how do we provide alternative forms of social support that can then get people out of gangs and into more um, pro-social situations. So there's a wide variety of possible interventions. And this is not even uh, diving into some of the work that's been done by transformative justice practitioners about community accountability for things like uh, inter intimate partner and interpersonal violence about ways that we can come together to, to really change the conditions, including the underlying assumptions about gender, about sexuality, about relationships, but to really change the power conditions um, within a relationship that lead to harm and abuse. What, what all of these interventions I think have in common is that they're all based in relationship. They're based in the understanding that we don't throw people away just for doing violence. We're not going to let them to continue to do violence, but that however we intervene has to be grounded in a recognition of the humanity of people who have done serious harm and a desire to maintain a relationship with them for the sake of preventing harm, changing the conditions that led to harm, getting them to do accountability work and to make amends. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm just really, really enjoying you uh, breaking this down and giving so much good depth on this. Um, I'm curious uh, about the response, um, maybe that you've that you've received, as, especially if you as you've done the education piece, um, and as you're kind of um, have been pushing in your own context um, within the church to. To kind of open eyes and um, yeah, what is I guess what has been the response that you've received um, as you've done the work in that arena? You know, the response is changing. I wouldn't say that the church as a whole, at least the white church, is wildly open to the idea of abolition yet. But I also think it's a very different world now than it was a year ago. Um, we're getting increased interest and you know, increased interest in making commitments to abolition, and especially as people are finding their ways to abolitionist theories through some of the protests this summer, through the ideas of defunding the police, and 
defunding the police lays out so clearly this abolitionist conception of instead of putting our money, our resources, and our energy into these death dealing systems, how can we build alternatives that what we're really trying to do is, is invest in alternatives that are life affirming, right. And so that's been very helpful. And it's been interesting to me to see that people are sympathetic to police abolition who might never have thought about prison abolition. And now I came into it from the other side. I came into it from the prison side. And of course, prison abolition also means the abolition of policing. But um, it's been really heartening to see people begin to get to get interested in that, even as at the same time, there is sort of reflexive discomfort. And I think there are a couple of, of reasons behind that, or at least that I've experienced. One is that you know, I think people are very committed to this idea that there is somebody out there who's unredeemable for whom this won't work. And so while I would say, look, I hope there's no such person, right? But until we get there, let's let's do these abolition things for as many people as we can, right? And And that's not to say I'm not interested in the hard cases. I am very interested in what can we do in these cases of serious harm and violence. But the reality is that, at least as far as I've seen so far, even in most of those hard cases, people are people and they may have done horrible things, but there are ways to connect and begin to encourage this work of accountability, this work of making amends to provide safety through these, these other forms of social support and, and, you know, and social pressure to, um, to participate. Um, I think that, so there's this deep reflexive commitment to the idea that there are, that there are people for whom this won't work. And, and because abolition makes these, this, you know, this universal claim, it makes this claim that we don't need prisons or police for anybody that we can do better without that, because it makes this claim, people get very fixated on, no, I'm sure there are people who need to be in prison, probably not very many, but there are people. And, you know, I think that is something we can work with as abolitionists. I'm not going to give up on the universalizing claims of abolition because we want everyone to be free, but also, you know, we can work together as far as we can. And so if you are not yet, you know, fully committed to abolition, you can continue to build abolitionist alternatives for everybody for whom it's possible and we'll deal with those, those hard cases as we get to them, I would say. Um, so that's one, one reflexive response. I think the other sort of response of suspicion tends to come just from the fact that this is unfamiliar and that what I am asking for in Christians for Abolition is, is a real reframing of our understanding of what it means to work as the church and of what Christian discipleship means. So it's not just the political realities of abolition, but it's also about how do we as Christians act as the corporate body of Christ to bring about this liberation that God is already putting into place in the world. Um, and that's a hard question for a number of reasons. And one of them is because of the sort of unholy union of the church and the state and the church and empire over many centuries. And the fact that I think the thought of Christians acting in concert for anything is kind of scary because of, of how how wrong it has gone. Um, and I think it's also scary because at least in, you know, mainline Protestant traditions, we have very much moved towards a sort of uh, understanding of ourselves as as fitting in reasonably well to the culture, as following the moral leads of the culture. Um, 
not entirely in a bad way, but in sort of going along with what is good in culture, instructing ourselves accord in accordance with democratic values of, you know, there's a sort of niceness um, about our churches and there's a real fear of conflict, I think, and a real sense that what we are building in the church is a public forum where everyone is welcome and where everybody brings their individual journeys. And so this idea that discipleship is not just about each of us deciding what we're going to do, although it does have very a very strong individual existential component, but is also about how do we act together um, in line with this nonviolent revolution that God is bringing to, to pass in the world um, is a hard question. And I think there's a, a serious fear of conflict that tends to lead to a reflexive discomfort. It's not abolition is a bad idea, but it's more I don't think we're there yet. And so that's where, you know, that's where this is an organizing problem, right? And this is about right. saying, how do we reach out to people? How do we build relationships? How are we thinking of our churches as becoming these kinds of strong communities? How are we using the tools of intentional community building that you learn in things like COSA or another restorative justice work to build those social supports as well everywhere we are in order to be able to, to move together to do this work? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm just holding on to, to what you're saying there. And, and I think uh, you're right that um, just the resistance to change at the beginning of this episode, I read uh, the public entrance of Jesus kind of announcing his, um, his ministry. And what I didn't read was at the very end when all the leaders came together to um, to immediately start plotting um, how they're going to get rid of this guy. Um, so the resistance um, to structural change, uh, the resistance to somebody saying it's time to free the captives is at least as old as Jesus. And we can go back and read even further back. Um, but yeah, um, I'm... I'm just, this is, uh, you know, we got to speak with Micah Herskin uh, last week. Uh, we got to speak with the abolition apostles um, a couple months back um, and with some uh, prison organizers uh, uh, along the way. And this has become kind of a recurring theme that I didn't set out <laughs> with at the beginning of this podcast. But what I'm just continually struck by with each of you is your commitment to not just the world as it should be or it could be um, in some ethereal sense, but, but it's this, um, this commitment to hope, um, this commitment to um, hope in the face of, um, you know, even people that push for prison reforms very, <laughs> very seldom get what they want and that it usually ends up being just more money thrown at prisons and more money thrown at the police. Um, but what y'all are pushing for and, and I put myself in that category with along with y'all um, and in my way too in my lane um, is something that is that is a um, it takes imagination and it takes um, courage and boldness and y'all have been out in, in the front of that so I don't know that I have a question in there for you Hannah but um, do you I guess I guess is it a is it a 
challenge for you to to think that one day this could all look like this or you do you get kind of um so deep into the work that um they, that's what your focus is on i mean i don't think there's any way to get around the fact that this is difficult and sometimes heartbreaking work right there are setbacks right. in terms of the, the question of hope i have two answers that i think are important and the first one is that we have to look back to the the older abolitionists to the way in which abolition was born out of the black radical tradition and to the people who have been doing it and kind of keeping the faith all along right and those are not necessarily christian organizers in fact often not but you know you cannot um i can't claim to keep hope for abolition without looking to angela davis and ruth wilson gilmore and mariam kaba and the the organizers and their many, many of them black women who have been doing this all along, right? And so that's an enormous source of hope is that this is this abolition is not new. This is something that people have been doing and to look as well at incarcerated organizers and at the yeah. fact that abolition is something that's going on all the time that 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 we are acting in solidarity with incarcerated people who are organizing for their own liberation. So I want to say that to say this has a long history. It's something that's continually going on. It's not, um, you know, I think it's really important that we not see this as look at us bringing Christian hope to yeah, this absolutely. field because it's always already there, right? And I believe that the place where God is in this is in the work that is always being done, is in the solidarity with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people who are seeking their own liberation. It's not something that that they're, they're not waiting for us to do anything. But I do think there's also a theological piece to this question of hope, right, which is that you know, I think there's a reason you keep coming back to prisons in your podcasting, and there's a reason this keeps coming up. And I was just reading recently, I was really struck by, by uh, Andre Trocmé's book, Jesus and the Nonviolent Revolution. And Andre Trocmé was a, a Protestant pastor during World War II in France who hid many Jews from the Nazis. But he wrote this book, and his, his thesis is that Jesus came to declare the jubilee of God for real. And he doesn't talk about abolition, although I think it's included, but he says Jesus came to declare that this economic redistribution that had been promised but not practiced was going to happen now, that he was really changing, as you say, the power structures, right? The structural systems of oppression. And this was not a perspective that I had seen in quite the same way until I read this book. And I think it's truly powerful to think, you know, Jesus had this material vision, not just a spiritual one, that he was killed for it, but that, that his resurrection proves that this could not stop god's promise of material liberation for everyone um and so for me part of our hope in this work is not just that we are doing it but that this is the work that god is doing and the work that god has been doing since the beginning and that the work of justice and reconciliation but i don't mean reconciliation in the sense of of unity and healing so much as this deeper work of of setting things right that that's work that God has has intended and has, through the whole life and, and death and resurrection of Jesus has been remaking the world in this new and just way that's not spiritual or idealized or really for the future, but that is a promise of material liberation for right now. Um, and so that's a thing that gives me hope is that we're not just, you know, we're not just waiting 
for this for Jesus to come back and make it all right, but that we've been promised that this nonviolent revolution of of jubilee that abolition and jubilee are the work that god is doing in the world right now and that the promise of liberation is not just spiritual and not just for the future but is is real and material for here and now and i think that's just the most countercultural thing imaginable to suggest that abolition and jubilee and everything at the center of our Christian life is not about spiritual realities, but about what we really do right here, right now in the world, and what God is really doing in the world that we are just participating in. Yeah, I think that is, you just hammer down every every nail, uh, <laughs> I think. Um, and, and yeah, I mean- Knock down I, every wall. Yeah. I, struggle to even like put a coda on what you said because it is so powerful and um and yeah i mean I, i'm just i i know that i'll be sitting with with your words um after this and and i'm sure that folks listening uh will as well um and i know that i have even more questions for you but i know that you have uh a time commitment and and, and um so i want to see if you have kind of a one last uh, thing that you want to plug, maybe that you're working on. We'll definitely link to um, christiansforabolition.org in the show notes, um, but that's your the website that you've put on. But um, is there anything else that you that you like to plug um, in our last few no. minutes together? I'll, you know, I'll direct folks to the website, which has lots of resources, including Bible study resources, other um, educational presentations that I have done or can do. A couple of projects we have going on right now. One of them is um, the abolition lectionary project. So we're working through the revised common lectionary, which a lot of a lot of churches use. Um, I'm, I'm an, at an Episcopal church and the Episcopal churches preach out of the lectionary every week. And so the goal of this project is to write a post on one of those lectionary readings for every Sunday from the perspective of abolition. And we have several great writers working on it. The idea being to say, look, every part of the Bible is relevant to this struggle, right? This is not just a nice political cause. It's not the church being too political, um, like people like to complain, but it's really central to the work that God is doing. And so, so that's an ongoing project. We started at the beginning of Advent and it's going to run throughout the year um, as, you know, intended as an aid for preachers, because I don't think this is going to change until preachers are preaching abolition from every pulpit every yeah. Sunday. Um, so that's, that's one project we have going on. Another recent project that's up on the site is an accountability toolkit. So I've gotten really interested and we haven't talked quite as much about this side of it, but about the, the sort of practical small scale practice of accountability in our daily lives as well. And what does that look like for us in our Christian lives in Christian communities to start building these communities of accountability? Because it was really striking to me that, you know, I've been a Christian for, for 15 years, but I never, never have heard as much about account accountability in the church as I started hearing from these transformative justice practitioners. Mm, and it was really striking to me that this is not part of our language. And so I think there's a real opportunity there for us to say, how does this, you know, how do we get involved in this in real and personal ways in our own communities? That it's not just about political action. It's not just about, you know, closing prisons. It's not just about defunding the police, but that it's also about how do we relate to each other and how do we take accountability for the harm we do in our own 
lives and how do we recognize harm as something that everybody participates in that we've all been harmed and we've all done harm and how do we start building the structures at the smallest scale you know in our families and in our churches and in our communities to build those tools to deal with the bigger problems and so that's been a really profound work for me as well is to start thinking through that and to start really understanding this as a, a, a personal and communal obligation that it's not just about the big picture and it's not even just about the prison ministry although i think everybody should you know be in contact with incarcerated people and build friendships there but that it's also about a change in our understanding of what it means to be in relationship with each other and what it means to be a community and what it means to understand harm. And as you say, it's this building this new imagination. It's having this bigger imagination for a world without prisons, which starts with everything from how we parent our children and how we think about accountability and punishment in relationship to our children to how we understand church discipline. And all of these issues are related. And, and when they come together, you know, we can we can broaden our imagination so that we can see what God is doing in the world. I'll stop there. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that is so well said. Uh, Hannah Bowman, thank you so much for making time to, to come on in and, and talk with us today. And um, like I said, I know I will be um, churning through uh, all that you said and, and, um, and hopefully uh, those listening will do, the, will do the same. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We would really appreciate it if you shared our show, subscribed, rated it, and reviewed it on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support our show, you can do that on anchor.fm. If you'd like to get in contact with us, that's publictheologianspodcast at gmail.com. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord and your neighbor in concrete material ways.